Thanks, Ming. Good evening and welcome to Uni Church. I'd love to add my welcome to Edmunds. Great to see you here. My name's Rowan, one of the pastors here at Uni Church. And to the dads, so great you've come along. It's great being a dad. I have four kids, which I enjoy. Our eldest is 10, our youngest is five, so they're close together. Uh, I think it just gives me great license to tell dad jokes, which I love. Um, I love it. And these guys have been putting up with me doing that. Over the, over the past uh, year, pretty much, we've been working our way through different books of the Bible as a church. It's one of the habits that we have here at Uni Church is you really don't want to hear what's going on in the head of the guy up the front talking. Like, I haven't got much to give you. Uh, we keep wanting to hear what God has to say through his word to us. Uh, what we're doing is a little bit of a break this week. And thank God we're not just hearing what I've got to say, but we're hearing what God has to say on a topic or a number of topics. We're starting a series called We Are, as you'll see on the screen. Uh, we are is really looking at what, what are we about as a church? What are we about as, as people, as Christians? Who are we? And it'll be a great chance over the next five weeks to be thinking through who we are and who God has made us. Now, these great designs they pointed out, if you get close, the, the lights are actually DNA strands. Well, not actually, they represent DNA strands. <laughs> I know. And so, you know, there's a bit of a feel of going, what is this church like? What are we to be like as Christians? Where are we going and what are we about? It's my prayer that as we hear this part of God's word tonight, as we think through what it means for us, that we'll be able to see who we are in the sight of God. So don't we pray that God would help us to understand what he's got to say and help us to see where he's going and who we are in him. Let's pray together. Father God, we are thankful tonight that we can come together. We are thankful that you are God. And that while you may not be seen The effects of your hands are seen all around us. We pray tonight that as we look into this part of your word in Colossians and other parts of the Bible, that we would see what you see. And help us to understand what it means to be people who live for you, for your glory. And we might come away tonight amazed at your son. Amen. Well, the closest I've come to losing my life as far as I'm aware, was a weekend that Sarah went away and left me at home. <laughs> now, it's not because I can't cook. I can cook. It's all right. I can do that. Um, but uh, what happened this weekend was I decided to go away with a few friends. Uh, it was around 2005. Uh, and at that point, uh, I had a motorcycle. I had a motorbike. I, I grew up riding motorbikes. I grew up on a, on a farm. And it's just something that I love about them. And I decided that I'd head away with some mates uh, about, about two k's away sorry, two hours away, uh, down the coast, uh, and I take my bike down there. So often I'm riding on this highway, kind of riding along, and it gets a bit boring when you're a motorcycle rider and they're just straight roads. You're like, oh, this is straight. You just kind of sit here. You, you want twists. And so after a while, I kind of came across another bike. When you come across a bike on the road, you're like, this is great. We can, you know, safety in numbers. And so you can ride together. We've got four wheels now. This is not just one of me. It's like... And so I kind of just followed along with this guy. He wasn't being crazy. I didn't know him. He'd occasionally overtake a couple of cars. Everything was great. Kind of putting along, going down, off we go. Uh, until there's this long right-hand bend. This really long right-hand bend. Probably went for about maybe 900 meters. Quite a long bend. And you could see all the way around it. You're allowed to overtake on it. And we got to the, the kind of this bit. And this bike in front of me just pulled out and, and kind of disappeared. And I was kind of just cruising along and I'd been following him all the way. It was kind of like I was on this autopilot. And so I just pulled out and went with him. The problem was he pulled out and just disappeared. He just went real quick. And I'm like, whoa. And then I looked up and there's like a line of maybe 10 or 12 cars. 
I'm like, well, that's a lot of cars. <laughs> and so I'm like, hang on a minute. And then I noticed that the car coming the other way, by the time I'd realized this, was already at the first car. And I'd already gone about a third of the way through, so I couldn't really slow down and pull back. And so I'm like, what do I do? You haven't got much time, right? You're out on the wrong side of the road. There's a car here. There's a car coming toward you. And I'm like, ah! I'm like, the only option I had was to kind of move to the middle and hope the car next to me would kind of move across a bit as the car came the other way and go past me. There's about 50 centimeters in it. That's exactly what happened. And I'm like, whew, go change my underwear, right? Because you're like, man, that was a moment. And it got me thinking, why did that happen? It happened because I just switched on autopilot. Now, my bike didn't really have autopilot. It wasn't like some fancy futuristic thing. But I just become blasé. And just started following the guy in front of me, doing exactly what he'd done and not really thinking about whether it was safe or not. I just kind of turned life into a game of follow the leader. And it could have ended up fatal. I want to put it to us tonight that every single one of us is at an even greater risk than I was that day by putting our lives on autopilot and following the person in front of us. There's an apathy that sometimes we have about life and what our goals and plans and purposes are and we just tend to follow the cultural push around us, swim with the tide, go with whatever in, who is, whoever is in front of us as way of, of doing things. And it can lead us into disastrous situations. Let me ask you this. Where are you going in life? What are your goals in life? What is your purpose in life? And who is setting that direction? All of us have goals and and vision and direction that we want to go, but who is setting that direction? And where are you going? Well, 2,000 years ago, we get a little insight in another part of the Bible of an interaction between two people. It was a Jewish rabbi and a Galilean carpenter. This Jewish rabbi walked up to the Galilean carpenter. And at first, kind of, look, it sounds like a joke, right? It's a Jewish rabbi, a Galilean carpenter. But this one comes with an even more serious punchline, okay? It sounds like a joke, but this interaction is incredibly serious. Because this Jewish rabbi knew these things about the God called Yahweh. He was a Jew. And this Galilean carpenter, his name was Jesus, and he had claimed to be God. He had claimed to be able to to heal the sick and and raise the dead. And people had seen it. There was something about this guy. And so this Jewish rabbi came up to Jesus and asked him this question. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Which command is the most important of all? Which command is the most important of all? If you could ask God one question, what would you ask him? What things pop to your head? Look, you know, why is the world round? Can you create a rock so big you can't move it? Don't spend the whole time from now on trying to work that problem out. If he is God and he has made us, then understanding what the right way to live is or what he says to do, like this is the key question. We get to sit on the shoulder or look over the shoulder of this interaction where a man is saying to the guy who claims to be God, what is the most important thing in life? What should I do with my life? Jesus answers him and he quotes part of the Old Testament and he kind of gives it some explanation at the same time. Look at Mark 12 verse 29. This is the most important, Jesus answered. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, 
the Lord is one. Now, if you were a Jew, you would have, you would have known that. That's called the Shema. That's something that the, that the Jews repeated to one another uh, often out of Deuteronomy. And it was kind of this key thing that they kept saying to one another to remind one another that God was God and there was no other. It kind of defined them. It was kind of one of their catch cries. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They call it the Shema because the Hebrew word for listen is Shema. But then Jesus gives explanation to it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. You want to know how to live? You want to know how God wants you to live? He wants you to love Him with everything. With all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And he's not kind of divvying up the body and go, use your head in that bit and the bottom of your foot, that's your soul. With that bit there, you can kind of love him there. Uh, he's saying, no, no, you exist. I exist to live for the one who made me in you. We exist to love God with everything. If you want to live a way that pleases God, God says you must live for him, in a way that is God-centered, focused on him. That is the purpose of life, living for God. Now, as I hear that, it's kind of part of me that goes, how arrogant is that? I don't know. You might be sitting there thinking the same thing. Who does this guy think he is? Who does God think he is? You know, how, how, would, I, how, would, how would it sound if I kind of went up to Sarah and said, Sarah, what you need to do, Sarah's my wife, <laughs> Sarah, um, what you need to do, or I think you should do with the rest of your life, is just live to love me with everything and don't love anyone else. Just, just all about me. You're like, what an arrogant guy. <laughs> like, who does he think he is? It's the sun revolves around him. Like, what is this? And you kind of hear this claim from God, and there's part of me that makes me go, well, who are you to claim this? Is Jesus really God? Is he the one who is in control of all things? Well, I want us to spend a few moments looking at that part of the Bible uh, that Ming read earlier in Colossians to hear a man named Paul's view of Jesus. And I want us to kind of stand back and look and just take the claims of the people who knew him closest, who were alive at the time, right? They've got the best view, those who were around, you know, those who lived 100, 200, 400, 1,000, 2,000 years later. We don't necessarily have the best view, but those who knew him, who were around him, who saw what went on, they do. And I want us to hear what they say about Jesus. I want us to look at Jesus. And the first thing that we're going to see Paul say about Jesus is this, that he is your creator. He's your creator. Look at me at Colossians 1 verse 16. For everything was created by him. He's talking about Jesus here. In heaven and on earth, the visible, the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Everything that exists from the deepest trench in the ocean, the Marinara Trench, to the top of Everest, from the smallest particle to the biggest star, from the ugliest cockroach to the most beautiful human. God created them all, and they all exist for Jesus. Everything exists for Him. Everything was created by Him, and it was all for Him. You exist for Him. 
Now, if that is true, if he really is God, then how should we respond? Should we maybe love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength? The claim of Paul here, and it's worth checking out. It's worth seeing from other sources to see whether the claims of history, the the books we have collected, not just those in the Bible, but those outside of it, if they point that Jesus was more than a man. And what you'll see is they do. They keep pointing that he was a miracle worker, that people claim that he rose from the dead, that people followed him in that very generation and worshipped him as God rather than the emperors and were happy to die on, 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 on stakes being burnt by Nero. This man called Jesus changed the earth and his claim is that he made you. Is that your picture of Jesus? When you think of Jesus in the Bible, what do you think of? Is he the one who, who made you? Because the claim of this passage is that not only did he make everything, not only does everything exist for him, but that he sustains everything to this very day. If you look at Jesus, you see not only is he the creator, but he is the sustainer. I'm going to try a quick experiment here. I would love you all to try this. You don't have to. Give it a go. I want you all to take a deep breath in. You ready? Go. And now out. Now, apart from... It's nice, isn't it, right? (laughs) Apart from mucking with the university air conditioning system all at once. What this means is that the only reason you and I could do that is because Jesus allowed it. The only reason your lungs could fill with air and that your heart took its next beat was because the sustainer of all things allowed it to go on. That's the claim. That's a pretty out there claim. But if it's true, then how do we live? Have you seen this guy? Verse 17, by him all things hold together. All things. One of the most amazing sights, I think, uh, that I've seen. There's lots of uh, uh, kind of creation type sites and the beauty of the world that I love. Uh, but something I love doing is watching airplanes take off. I don't know, have you ever sat and watched a plane take off? It just, it just baffles me. Do you know that the, the average 747 weighs 400,000 kilograms? That's 243 cars. And what they do is that they kind of sit on a runway, they strap everyone in with jet kind of engines, turboprop engines, not even that, so what they call jet turbines. Sorry for aerospace engineers here. Um, just want to be clear, it's not a jet, it's, it's a turbine. Anyway, um, and they sit on the runway and they kind of whack the stuff forward, put heaps of fuel in and they hurtle down the end thinking that 243 cars worth of weight is going to lift off the ground and go into the air. That just amazes me. How does that chunk of metal fly? Um, who, who here has ever been on a plane? Shove hands. All right. Did any of you ever wonder whether it would take off at the end of the runway? 243, have you ever seen a car fly? Just one? 243 cars and it lifts off the ground. Why does it do that? Well, science tells us because there are some constants in the universe. And it's got to do with the way that air goes over the top of the wing and that being a longer path than the air going underneath, which which produces a negative pressure force, which pushes the wing up and provides lift. And we're like, okay, so we kind of trust that. But how do we know that that's going to happen tomorrow? How do we know the universe is going to act in the same way and hold together the same way? We don't. We've seen it do it before, but we don't know it will do that tomorrow. Science can never predict the future. In fact, science, the basis of empirical research, 
requires a universe that has order, that's kept together, that its constants and laws are exactly that. They're constant. They're laws. They're repeatable and reliable. According to Colossians 1, all of that is only possible because Jesus sustains the universe. He holds it all together. He keeps those laws and constants in place. Science has no reason as to why they're constant. It just exists. In fact, scientists throughout the years have looked at the statistical probability that the universe just came about by random chance, that all these constants just kind of lined up by a freak accident. And it is possible, it's statistically possible for that to happen. But the odds of it happening that way are incredibly unbelievable. Incredibly. It takes so much belief to think that this happened by chance than that it actually was put together by someone. The probability of all the constants that need to exist in a constant state for life to be possible on earth, um, and that happening by a freak chance, would be like taking a coin and flipping it and getting heads 10 quintillion times in a row. 10 quintillion, that's, that's kind of like uh, if you take 10 and then add a million and then another, another, kind of, another million to the number. It's 10 with 18 zeros after it. That's the likelihood that all the constants would line up. Ten quintillion times in a row, flipping a coin, that it's going to work out that way. It feels like a leap in the dark for me. The astronomer who came up with the name Big Bang, Fred um, Hoyle, his name was, he's an atheist, and he didn't believe that there was a God. But he said, and I'll quote him, he said that his atheism was greatly shaken when he realized the statistical improbability of the universe. He later wrote this, and I'll quote it again, A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics, as well as with the chemistry and the biology. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question, someone has monkeyed with the physics. And that someone is Jesus. (laughs) He has ordered the universe. He has designed it and created it to be the way that it is. Is it really just random chance? We rely on it in our cars every day. We rely on it in our sitting in our seats so we don't float off into space and we strap ourselves to a hunk of metal and fuel and go to the end of the runway and lift off. We, we rely on him all the time. But sometimes we ignore him. We don't recognize that he is the one holding the laws and the constants in place. Jesus said, not even a sparrow falls to the ground outside of the will of my father. He is in control of it all. He made it all. And he is sustaining it all. Paul could be clearer as he writes this letter to this church in Colossae. As he points them to who Jesus is. He is the creator of all things. And he is the sustainer of all things. If you took Jesus out of the equation, there would be nothing. Who is Jesus to you? Because the Bible... Its claim is that he's not just some guy who is a moral teacher. The Bible's claim is that he is your maker. That he made you and he sustains you right now. Who is Jesus to you? I hope you'll come and look at the evidence that does exist. That you'll see the claims of this man and you'll hear him and see that he is God. If you'd like to check out more of Christianity, come and chat to me or someone who invited you here tonight. Um, We've got a thing called Explaining Christianity that might be helpful for you to work this stuff out, but throw your hard questions at him. For this God, this person, Jesus, is amazing. But not only is he the creator, 
Not only is he the one who sustains all things, but Jesus is the saviour as well. See, life can't be properly lived without reference to him, without relationship to him. If someone makes you, if you're a dad, you've got a special relationship with your daughter or son. You made them, you brought them into the world. If God made you, if Jesus created you, then we can't live life without relationship to him. We are in relationship to him. It might be a dysfunctional one, but we are in relationship to him. Listen to the way Paul describes our natural relationship with God. Colossians 1.21 Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless and blameless before him. Paul here is writing to a group of people who are convinced Jesus is God. And he's showing them that once they were very much alienated from God. If you're coming along here and checking out the things of God, please see this very carefully. Christians don't think we're any better than anyone else. We, we know we're not. <laughs> that that we, we don't treat others the way we should. We don't treat God the way we should. We're broken. Please, if you've heard Christians come across as though we've got it all together, I'm, I want to apologize. I'm sorry. That's not the case at all, for we are people that have been alienated from God. We don't treat God as we should. That's our natural state. We, we love being in control. We love kind of making the shots and, and, and doing our own thing. It's all of us, right? No one's like, yes, I, I kind of want to step back and let someone else kind of rule my life. Not naturally. We want to be in control. We want to be free to do whatever we want any old time, right? And what Paul says here is that that is our natural state. We've been alienated from God, the one who made us, who sustains us, because we've chosen to live without reference to Him. We've chosen to live in a way that hasn't put Him in His position. Because of our evil actions, we've been hostile toward Him. Now, it's easy to go, look, I'm not evil. And I'm sure we all all feel that, but (laughs) what would it be like to go to your parents, to go to one of your parents and say, look, no offense, I just don't think you made me. I just don't want you in my life. I, no offense to you. I'm not trying to be harsh or, just, you know, I just want to get on and run my life as if I never didn't have any parents. So I just got here. I was an accident. That's how it happened. If Jesus is God and he made you and me and he sustains you and me, then to ignore him is incredibly arrogant. It's incredibly rude. It's a Living life without reference to God, without serving Jesus, is evil. It's wrong. But Jesus is very different from us on so many levels. We didn't create the world. We don't sustain the world. Sometimes I'd like to think I do. I don't. But Jesus never rejected his Father. God the Son never rejected God the Father. He never tried to assert his place, yet the Father gave him all authority in heaven and earth. Jesus always lived with God in the right place, God the Father in the right place in his life. Yet when Jesus died on the cross, he did the most extraordinary thing. He died taking the penalty that you and I deserve. When he died on that cross, it wasn't just some accident that happened throughout history. 
No, Jesus died knowing he would die on the cross. He, he said it three times uh, throughout Mark. You see it pointed forward to in, in the book of Isaiah, 700 years earlier, that he would come and die in our place. He would be punished for our sins. His, the iniquities of us would be on him, is what Isaiah said, 700 years before this promised king, this Messiah came. When Jesus died on the cross, God died in your place. The one who sustained you and who made you came and and willingly took the penalty that you and I deserve for rejecting the Father. And he said, I'll take it on me so that you can be forgiven if you would just trust me. That's amazing. Who do you know that has done anything like that? I mean, sometimes we hear people say, I would die for you. I don't know anyone that ever has died for me. But Jesus says, he, not only would he, but he did. He took the penalty that we deserve so that we could be forgiven. It's my hope that tonight you see who Jesus is. Creator, sustainer, saviour. He offers to fix our relationship between us and God. He offers to to extinguish death and offer life forever, to forgive us so that we might have relationship with Him. To love Him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind and all our strength is the only rational and reasonable response to the one who made you and sustained you and saves you, isn't it? How else will you respond to someone like that? How could we just not treat him as he is? If that actually went on, if he is this God, then what a great God he is. But I think all too often in life, we kind of treat Jesus like a hitchhiker. You know, you're driving along the road and you kind of see a hitchhiker on the side of the road. Is it, show of hands, has anyone ever picked up a hitchhiker? I'd just love to see. Oh, the back, the back crew. Right. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. It's interesting to know. I think in life, we can kind of have a number of responses to Jesus. And it's kind of like the way there are a number of responses to a hitchhiker. Right? The first response is the Volvo driver. Right? You know, Volvo drivers, the safest car in the world. They just drive their car totally oblivious to the outside world. I'm like, they don't have to worry about anything. Like, a truck could hit them and they'd be fine. <laughs> we have airbags. You know, there's like... It's just that if you're driving a Volvo, no, no offense, but that's what it's like. And it's like, what hitchhiker? You know, I had my sat-nav on. It was taking me the direction that I wanted to go. And I had the, the nice music with classical, you know, playing in the background. And all the kids were doing Sudoku puzzles. And, you know, and they're three. Yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's sometimes what it's like with Jesus. I don't need you. I don't even, what a hitchhiker. I don't even see Jesus. Why do, I, why do I need to worry about this idea of a God? I've got my Volvo. My life's pretty okay. I'm pretty smart. I feel like I'm doing all right. I I don't need you. Another response to the kind of hitchhiker Jesus is the view that kind of drives along and sees the guy on the side of the road. He's like, who's that crazy guy? Like, what's going on with him? And you kind of slow down. And you're like, no, I'm not going near that. I don't need that. I don't need that in my car. And that's what we do, right? We often kind of keep going. Everyone else didn't put your hand up. If you don't drive, maybe that's what you're doing in life. But with Jesus, we think, ah, oh, I don't really need this. We're not oblivious to him. We've seen something of him, but we're like, no, nah, it's, just, it's just not for me. Others of us kind of drive past and we're like, oh, we feel sorry for him. Like, oh, poor guy, Galilean carpenter. Oh, I guess I should check out something of him. He's had some impact on the world and you kind of slow down and you might go, hey, where are you heading? You know, out the window. 
you ask him where he's going, and you're like, oh, I'm not really going that way. But, you know. And so you might, you might give some money to, to, to the church, or you might give uh, some support, some charities, and kind of help out. Look, I'll give you a lift to the next bus stop, and you can get a bus from there. Here's 10 bucks. You know, we can't treat Jesus like that. Like, he needs our money. Others of us, we kind of, we slow down, and we're like, you know what? I've got a bit of space in the car. I feel like life, you know, I'm, I'm up for a bit of a challenge, a bit of an adventure. And so we, we might slow down and let the hitchhiker in because, you know, he's going to fulfill our, our car. It's going to make the car journey a bit more fun and we can talk together and I'm, I might learn something. And so we kind of invite Jesus in uh, to be kind of part of the car for a while because we've got some space to squeeze him in next to the duvet cover and, you know, wherever we're going on holidays. And he kind of hops in and the car ride's a bit more fun and we, he's got some cool songs, you know, that's pretty fun. We can sing along with him. Apparently, he's done some great tricks, you know, and so you kind of, life works all right. But if Jesus is the Son of God, if he's the one that sustains us and who made us and who saves us, then the only right response when you recognize that that is who he is, is to slam on the brakes of the car, lock up all the wheels, be like, that's God. That is the one that is sustaining me right now. He's come and he's died in my place and he's offered me life. It's to stop the car and say, shut up. What is this guy? And when you recognize he's the one who controls the universe, how do we respond? Well, you we don't say, oh, you know, oh, sorry, I'm going this way. You get out of the car and you say, you drive. <laughs> like, you, like, you, you, ta- you made me. I want to serve you. You take me. You go. It doesn't matter where I'm going. He's like, where are you off to? I'm like, wherever you are. See, recognizing that Jesus is God, that he's created us and that he sustains us and that he's saved us, changes how we live. You can't just pack him into life. It's crazy to ignore him, although some do. The right response is to stand and be amazed. Do you see this man? And to let him shape and mold and change your life and what you live for, the purpose of why we exist. When you see Jesus for who he is, the right response is to magnify him. Now that word magnify is a bit of a funny word. We've titled this, this talk tonight, uh, We Are Magnifiers. What does that mean? Are we all like little magnifying glasses? We go around burning ants like, yeah, no. That's not the view of Christianity. If you've got a view of Christianity that's like that, just judgment, burning ants, come chat with me later and we'll sort that out. <laughs> no, there's different types of magnification. Right? There's the magnification that you kind of take something really, really tiny and you make it bigger. You kind of expand it, you explode it, so you're like, whoa, look at it now, it's really big and you can see it up close. That's not the type of magnification that we need to do. We don't need to make Jesus bigger so the world around will kind of be like, look, he's bigger than he is. You know, it's like we go up to Jesus and plug in the kind of the airbed pump. We, we pump him up and he's like, whoa, look at him. He's getting really big. And everyone's like, oh, okay. No, no, that's not the type of magnification we're talking about here. The right response to recognizing who Jesus is, to loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, is to show people the greatness of Jesus. It's the type of magnification that you use in a telescope. What does a telescope do? It brings planets that are huge, but just a long way away, closer. It lets us see in all their brilliance, the rings on the planet and how amazing they are, like they're right in front of us. That's the type of people we are to be. People that show the world around us how great Jesus is. By the way we live, by the way we speak, 
by the way that we love the world around us, by the way that we show people who Jesus is and say, have you seen who this guy is? He was so great. I stopped the ride of my life. I got out and I sat in the passenger seat and said, you drive. Because he is my king. He made me and he sustains me and he saves me. He is who I live for. A couple of years ago, uh, there's a band called U2. Has anyone heard of that? <laughs> People here know U2 is one of my favorite bands. Uh, and they're on the, on the, on the, probably the favorite band. I'm like, maybe I've got a crush on U2. I don't know. I, I love U2. And they, oh, U2. Oh, that's, that's a dad right there. That's a dad. Oh, that is so great. Yeah, those type of jokes really get us on the edge. Yeah, thank you. The edge is the guitarist from you too. Anyway. Um, no, seriously, you two were on the Jimmy Fallon show. You know the Jimmy Fallon show, okay? You two were on, and what they did was they got you two to dress up and they put beards on and disguised themselves and went down to the 42nd Street subway in New York. And they put you two, the real you two, out on the subway just busking and playing stuff. And they were kind of there, and people were kind of walking past, and, oh, yeah, this guy sounded right. Not, not bad U2 impersonation. There's a few people standing around and being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then halfway through, they stop. They just go, look, look, I'm sorry, sorry. And they pull off their masks and just start singing one of their greatest hits, Desire. And just like, and everyone's like, whoa, that's U2. Like, U2 are here. And crowds start coming around. There's cameras out. People are trying to get close. And everyone's singing at the top of their voice along with them being like, yeah, free concert. And they're like moving around and crowds keep coming and trains empty, but don't leave the station. And you're like, whoa, look at this. Why is that? Because people recognize the magnificence of the best band in the world. (laughs) When we recognize the magnificence of not some small-time band called U2, but the one who created and sustains everything, then it's right to respond very differently than just a cursory walk past. It's right to respond by giving our lives, by serving Him, by recognizing who He is, by being excited, by singing, by praising, being excited by this guy who is God. God come to earth. That day, U2 playing on the platform changed the purposes of people's day. They went, stuff going to work. I'm going to stand here with a free U2 concert. They they didn't walk off the platform. It changed what was happening. When you come across the creator of the universe and he says, I made you, I sustain you, I've died for you. And I'm saying, come and let me love you. Let me lead your life. The only right response is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength to magnify him. Now, that idea is a concept that's been around for a long time, that God is worthy of our praise. The psalmists, they're the songwriters of the Old Testament. There's a book of Psalms, they're a collection of songs, Israel's greatest hits. That's what Psalms means. Not literally, but it's kind of like that, right? I did a search throughout the Psalms of the word praise to see how often praise is used. I didn't even search for hallelujah, which is praise the Lord, right? And it just comes up so much. Um, I was going to read all the Psalms that talk about praise out to you, uh, but I added 6,800 words to my document, which is probably about three normal sermons extra. So let me read a couple for you. And you can hear how they respond to recognizing God. And they didn't even have Jesus at this point. Psalm 22. I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will praise you in the congregation. You who fear the Lord, praise him. Do you get that? 
as someone who's understood God and has praised Him, wants to live for Him, to speak the name of the Lord to those around. Psalm 28. May the Lord be praised, for He's heard the sound of my pleading. The Lord is my strength, my shield. My heart trusts in Him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart rejoices. I praise Him with my song. God's actions of saving us have always been actions that turn to a response of praising Him. Psalm 31, may the Lord be praised, for He has wonderfully shown His faithful love to me. They didn't even have Jesus. Jesus has shown us God's love for us when He died in our place at the cross while we didn't deserve it, while we were aliens and hostile to Him. I will praise the Lord, Psalm 34, at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. Listen to Psalm 42. Even in hard times, you're like, sure, is, sure, I'll praise God when things are going well, but what about when life's hard? Listen to Psalm 42. Why am I so depressed? Why is this turmoil within me? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise Him, my Saviour. And my God. What was it that carried the psalmist at this point through this time of hardship and turmoil? That his hope wasn't for here and now, for his little tiny blip of life called life now. His hope was for eternity in God's salvation and the fact that God was God, that he made him. So the psalmist, even through hard times, can turn and praise God for he is worthy to be praised. I will cause your name to be remembered for all generations. Therefore, the people will praise you forever and ever. That is magnifying God. Causing God's name to be known, not because we're somehow special, but because He is. Jesus made you. Your name, God, like your praise, reaches to the ends of the earth. Who can declare the Lord's mighty acts or proclaim all the praise due to him? That's Psalm 106, verse 2. In other words, you could praise God with all your energy, be speaking of how great he is, live for him with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And in the end of all that, that's still not worthy of how great he is. We can give him everything, but he is greater than that. And yet he still loves us. (laughs) The psalmist ends in Psalm 150 with these words. Let everything that has breath, praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath, praise the Lord. You were created to magnify God. No matter what you believe of Jesus, no matter what your take is, you were made and you were sustained so that you might see God as He is. And if you would do that, if you would come and recognize who Jesus is, look at the evidence that exists. Don't check your brain at the door, but look at the evidence that is there for who He is and what He has done and see that life Live praising Him is the best life ever. It's life recognizing the Creator who made you. It's life that has hope. It's us living in right relationship with the God who sustains us. Friends, so many of us have our lives switched on autopilot. Whether we're Christians or not. Whether we're Hindus or Buddhists or atheists or agnostics, we just go along in life following the leader. Friends, learn from my mistakes. That ends up very badly. 
If we just follow the person in front of us without thinking through this hitchhiker on the road called Jesus, then life will be derailed. There is no life after death without him. Without Jesus driving the car of our life, there is no life after death. We need to take our lives off autopilot. We need to look at the evidence that exists for a creator in this world, in his word. We need to let Jesus get in the driver's seat of our car and let him drive. To live with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, loving him magnifying his name, pointing all around us to him and how great he is. That is why we live. Because we are magnifiers. Let me pray. Father God, tonight we just want to sit back and be amazed at how amazing you are. That you've created us and despite our, our own hostility towards you, the times we don't treat you as we ought, that you still love us, that Jesus still came and died for us. Father, it amazes us that while Jesus' arms were being nailed to a wooden cross, he still sustained the universe. And he sustained the heartbeats of those who nailed him to that cross. And he did it because... He loved us because you love us. Father, we ask tonight that we might see Jesus clearly. We might look around at your creation and look into your word and see how you have spoken so clearly and showed us who he is and what he's done. We ask that you would so capture us that we would live for you with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind and all our strength. That we would put our life in Jesus' hands and that we would let him drive our lives. Father, we thank you for the amazing privilege it is to know you and to be known by you. And we pray that you would help us magnify your name in all that we do. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.